Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our scripture passages this morning come from the Gospel of Matthew and from Paul's first letter to the Church of Corinth. Listen for what God is saying to you. We know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, what is partial will be brought to an end. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, reason like a child, think like a child. But now that I have become a man, I've put an end to childish things. Now we see a reflection in a mirror, then we will see, fa we will see face to face. Now I know partially, but then I will know completely in the same way that I have been completely known. Now faith, hope, and love remain, these three things, and the greatest of these is love. From there, Jesus went to the regions of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from those territories, territories came and shouted, Show mercy, son of David. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. But he didn't respond to her at all. His disciples came and urged him, Send her away. She keeps shouting out after us. Jesus replied, I've been sent only to the lost sheep, the people of Israel. But she knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. He replied, It is not good to take the children's bread and toss it to dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off their master's table. Jesus answered, Woman, you have great faith. It will be just as you wish. And right then, her daughter was healed. May God add a blessing to the hearing and understanding of this scripture. morning again. Um, great to worship with you. Thank you for um, encouraging me with your presence and with your spirit. Um, let us come together in a word of prayer. God, we thank you that, um, that you are here in this space to help us see through, through in a mirror just a little bit more clearly than um, maybe when we first walked in. Open our hearts and open our minds to receive what it is that you have to say and help us to to be surprised with joy, as, uh, as you are usually um, at work to do, that we might leave this place, even as we wrestle um, with, with uh, hard issues, um, with hope, with possibility, and with encouragement. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So when I was about um, 14, I was walking down the street with my best friend at the time, who was uh, not Asian, which will become important in a second. Um, and I can't remember exactly what we were talking about, uh, but I know I was recounting some kind of interaction um, that brought up the question that was always looming in my teenage mind, right? Is there something wrong with me? And I was reflecting on, as I was reflecting on the situation, um, and at the bottom of it, really, kind of this question, I wondered out loud if the reason why this interaction occurred the way that it did was because I was Asian. And her response, as a good best friend uh, should be, 
uh, was defensive on my behalf. What? I don't even think of you as being Asian. And I paused for a minute, not quite sure how I was feeling about that response, and I said, thanks. At the time, I wasn't able to articulate why her response uh, felt off to me, but now I can see that it implied that what was implied in her good-hearted, well-intentioned, fierce friendship love defense was an underlying assumption, not even an assumption, but something more like a value statement, right? She may as well have said, how rude of someone to think of you as Asian, as if it were a liability, right? Impolite to mention, like a missing finger or a zit or the fact that I've gotten a little pudgy, right? as if I should be ashamed of this. And below, way below this awkward conversation and behind, far behind this bulky discussion are countless conversations and discussions which echo and fumble around a question that no one quite knew how to utter until the historian, activist, and author W.E.B. Dubois gave it shape. Du Bois, sorry. How does it feel to be a problem? And this question was rooted in his experience as a black American male, shuttled back and forth, right, between being revered and reviled, dignified and desecrated, but always a problem to be solved, or not. My friend was not a bad person. She was, she is intelligent, thoughtful, and as faithful as anyone else in this room. She was just completely ill-equipped to have a conversation that even touched on the topic of race. And so was I. So we walked on, and we never talked about it again. Well, here I am, <clears throat> years later, and I still don't see many folks who are equipped for these kinds of conversations. The reasons are complex, right? For some, it's out of a desire to minimize our difference and try to assimilate and be the same as much as possible, like what I experienced with my immigrant mother. And for others, maybe it's out of a fear or anxiety or defensiveness that they might be made to feel guilty or accused of things that they feel they have no direct fault in. Or for others, it might be that they can speak conversantly about their own uh, identity and location, but have little to no expectation or experience of others around them. And so it's for these reasons and so many more that we have a sermon series like the one we're beginning today. Because we say we strive to be a church without walls, we say we're a faith community that uh, is committed to the principles of anti-racism and racial reconciliation. But that doesn't actually happen until and unless we equip ourselves with language and a lens and a critical engagement of our collective history and the formation of systemic structures that we live in. And that doesn't happen, very well at least, unless we are rooted in the principles that Paul talks about in today's scripture passage that we heard. Faith, hope, and love. So the Corinthians passage that Joel read is at the tail end of a whole chapter about love. You've probably heard it read at a, a wedding. Um, and he's pausing on this because if you read the entire letter beforehand, uh, the 12 chapters before, a big part of the issue um, is, is the folks in the church of Corinth are doing what people do, bringing their petty selves. <laughs> because some folk paid for the meal they think they ought to get firsts and seconds before the people who are hustling for their daily bread, coming to worship as soon as they get off work, get theirs. It's only fair. We paid for it. Petty. Then there's the situation I talked about last week 
where some folk are asserting that the gifts that they bring to the community make them more important than others. Petty. And Paul and some to be in the back. After all, that's what happens when you've got a line, right? There's a front and there's a back. And God is saying, I'm not looking for lines. I'm trying to make a circle where there is no front or back, no beginning or end, like my love, like me. But in the day-to-day, it gets tough to know how that works out in real time, right? Because you get so used to how things are in your little slice of reality, whether it's uh, walking down 53rd Street or 61st Street or uh, the hallways of the academy or that same path you walk from doorstep to CTA stop to work and back or your carefully cultivated Facebook news feeds or preferred news sources or Netflix recommended for you algorithms. We live in bubbles of our own making and the world's devising. And in the words of Run DMC, it's tricky. This is for my 80s babies, to educate my 90s babies. And in the city, it's a pity, they say, because we just can't hide. Tinted windows don't mean nothing. They know who's inside. Because you think you're incognito, invisible, and inconspicuous, but by your very way of being, you reveal who you are, right? And who you aren't. Maybe that's how Jesus thought he'd be, traveling through Tyre and Sidon with his tinted windows, keeping him on the DL. But it's tough to keep a low profile, I think, especially when you're rolling at least 12 deep, not counting the ladies. And you're coming off a week where you just fed 5,000 people, walked on water, and healed some sick folk just by them touching your clothes. And who knows why he is in the area, which is definitely not his neighborhood. Maybe it's just on the way, but Jesus' good neighborhood app totally failed him. Tyre and Sidon were those hoods that someone like Jesus definitely did not belong in. So Jesus is rolling through, and this woman, a Canaanite woman from one of those territories, if you know what I mean, comes out shouting for him to help her daughter. But he doesn't respond to her. And, you know, honestly, I can't blame him because, you know, sometimes when I'm walking down the street and someone starts shouting at me, I'm likely to pretend it has nothing to do with me and keep it moving. (laughs) Maybe even a little faster than before, right? But she keeps shouting, and she's getting closer, and it's clear that she is, A, shouting for him, and B, she's not going to give up. The disciples tell him to tell her to get lost. And I'm sorry, but am I the only one who feels a little disappointed by Jesus' weak sauce response? I'm not here for you. I'm here for my people. Ouch. And so for some of you, I might be messing with your Jesus a little, but let's be grown-up Christians and hang in there to work it out, okay? Because here's the thing. Jesus says, oh, my ministry is only for the people of Israel. But in Luke's gospel, chapter 4, a centurion, a centurion, 
someone who heads the company of 100 soldiers, century, centurion, get it? A military leader for the empire, a centurion who has power and privilege in Rome, he asked Jesus to heal his beloved servant in, in Luke 4. You can look it up. And Jesus is like, sure, where's he at? Just like that. And if you compare the two stories, they're almost exactly identical in some key ways that I'm not going to get into. But the difference is, he says no to this woman, and he says yes to the centurion. Right? So I'm thinking about that Jesus, who did not hesitate to help this centurion, in the back of my head, and I see him treating this woman, who is so desperate for her daughter to be healed that she's on her knees in the middle of the street. And I think, really, Jesus? You're going to help that guy like it ain't no thing, but you'll do that to this woman? Come on. That's not the Jesus I know. So what's going on? Well, without going too deep into it, I'll just say that the different Gospels were written with two different audiences' mind, which you would know if you had been part of our What the Hell Bible study. (laughs) For Luke, that was a little bit of shade there. For Luke, it was Gentile Roman types. For Matthew, uh, where this story is located, it's Jewish people. And for both of the Gospels, it's about how God's grace and healing work is not just for some people, but for all people. God's grace and healing work is for the person caught in militaristic cycles of violence and death, and for the desperate mother on her knees in the middle of the street, regardless of her background. But, and this is a big but, I like to say that Sir Mix-a-Lot is not the only one who likes big butts. God does too. But to just say that God's love and healing work is for everyone without acknowledging that we have some ish to work through in order to get there is like calling a song that mentions absolutely no ironies ironic. It's a lie. So what's going on? Here's what I think. Matthew is all about trying to get his people, the Jews, to see that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And so he's writing with that lens and worldview in mind. And Jesus is their people, right? He's Jewish. Which means that Jesus, in his human self, also has their lens, right? So when the woman comes up to him, she's not only asking him to help her, she's also making him come up against maybe some deep-seated, generations-long, internalized racial superiority that he may never even realized about him for himself. So we'll unpack this uh, this. Uh, Um, definition a little bit later. But internalized racial superiority is the acceptance of and acting out of a superior definition um, rooted in the historical designation of one's race. Over many generations, this process of empowerment and access expresses itself as unearned privileges, access to institutional power, and invisible advantages based upon race. And so, like I said, we'll unpack that in a couple of weeks. But maybe she's kind of revealing to him that he's got some of that stuff going on, right? So what's he going to do? Keep on walking and try to pretend that she's not there? Or is he going to look her in the face and see her? He stops. He sees her. He listens to what she's saying. And then he really sees her. And he realizes, oh, snap. I've been looking for someone who truly gets me, and I almost missed her. So he says, great is your faith. I think not only because she believed him, but because she was willing to wrestle with Jesus and struggle with him and move him, push him to act in ways that maybe felt uncomfortable to him, right? Because of her faith and courage, he not only recognized the limitation of his lens, he was able to have his sense expanded to be able to see through her lens. Today is our first Sunday of getting information and getting in formation. 
as a church without walls, to be a faith community that seeks to truly live what we proclaim about God's inclusive love through our commitment to anti-racism and racial reconciliation. Getting in formation means getting educated and undoing the mess that has been made of our hearts and minds by this world that we live in. It means unpacking who we are and how we are in order to be who we, who we truly are, God's children. Power, privilege, and possibility. We do this by recognizing two small truths and one big one. My truth, your truth, and God's truth. This is exactly what went down in Jesus' encounter with the Canaanite woman. And here's how it happened. First, Jesus went somewhere he, he would encounter difference. Jesus made, to be, made a choice to be in a place and among a people that were not his own. Maybe on purpose or maybe by accident, this made it possible for him to not only experience something new, but realize something about himself. He had some work to do. And so he did it. He did the work. He took the risk to consider someone else's truth, someone who he had been implicitly or explicitly encouraged to think of as better than, and he opened himself to being changed by it. He didn't get defensive, right? He didn't say, I got to build higher walls. No. <laughs> he said, okay, let's, let's work this out. Let's figure this out. And so secondly, though, it's not just about him, right? Also, the woman... She was on her home turf. This was her safe area, right? And instead of choosing to take the opportunity to make him feel like a schmuck or feel guilty or ashamed, she took the risk to be vulnerable and share her truth with him. I need you. You have power that I need. She named his power and then pushed him to reconsider who it was for, what God's truth could look like. And because of their mutual vulnerability, a Pentecostal spirit began to blow through. An unpredictable spirit that made everyone just a little uncomfortable and a little more hopeful. Because of their mutuality, this same spirit blows today in this space. She blows around us and between us and through us, nudging us, challenging us to do the uncomfortable work of seeing one another with greater clarity of investigating ourselves more deeply, to test out just how great is our faith, how strong is our faith, so that we can be liberated, loving, and life-giving people here in this neighborhood, in this city, for one another. Today and over the next few weeks, we are trying to be grown-ups in our faith and look in the mirror to see just a little bit more clearly. We are getting information and we are getting information through your truth, through my truth, and for God's truth. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks that we have a strong faith because we have a strong God who holds us in places and spaces and relationships that make us maybe feel a little uncomfortable and uncertain and awkward and maybe even powerless. We thank you that you hold those spaces, those brave spaces that encourage us, that give us the opportunity to grow, to expand, to step up and step out, to really know what we're made of and what you're made of. So help us, especially over these next few weeks, to become people without walls, to become a community without walls, to work toward um, racial reconciliation and dismantle those things that have so separated us and created painful rifts between communities and individuals. Ready our hearts for your Pentecostal spirit to blow through us 
and help us to be transformed for the better because of it, for the sake of your kingdom in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.